If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. The Anglosphere is why Bermuda is not Haiti. It's why Hong Kong is not China. It's why Singapore is not Indonesia. That was Daniel Hanan talking about his latest book, How We Invented Freedom and Why It Matters. If you turn up to the battlefield looking like this, you're clearly a well-trained warrior in control who means business. And that was Pieter Greaves, Staffordshire Horde Conservation Coordinator, discussing Anglo-Saxon warfare. and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good news agents or you can take out a subscription from wherever you are. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for our latest subscription deals. And we also have digital editions available for the iPad, Kindle, Kindle Fire Google Play and Zinio. For details of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Daniel Hanan is a writer and politician who currently serves as a Conservative member of the European Parliament. For his most recent book, How We Invented Freedom and Why It Matters, he makes the case for Britain and the Anglosphere having played a decisive role in creating the liberties that many people around the world enjoy today. I spoke to Daniel down the line from the European Parliament in Brussels to find out more. Your book's title is about how we invented freedom. And so just a simple question is, who is we in this case? We is the English-speaking peoples. The things that people take for granted in the modern world, democracy, regular elections, personal freedom, free contract, jury trials, equality between men and women, habeas corpus, we tend to think that these are universal values, or at least Western values. But really, they became Western or universal only as a result of a series of military victories by the English-speaking peoples. These were precepts that were overwhelmingly developed in the language that you and I are now talking. And so they're now part of the English-speaking world, but originally I'm guessing they came from England, or would it it be better to say England or Britain in this case? Well, I think they were intensified in other parts of the English-speaking world. I think they they reached their purest form in the old courthouse in Philadelphia, first in the US Declaration of Independence and then in the Constitution. Uh, And I think they existed within the British Isles more strongly in parts of, of Scotland and Northern Ireland than in parts of England. But... These are values that have deep roots that claw their way far into the cold, soggy soil of the early Middle Ages. Uh, They draw on the folk right of common law, on the accident of being an island, on religious pluralism, on peculiarities of of land tenure and inheritance rules. You know, they they came about really accidentally. It it could have happened in lots of places, but it, it happened to be 
in uh, first in the British Isles and then in the wider collection of, of countries that adopted the common law system in the English language. So it's not that there was something inherently freedom-loving about the English originally. It was just a series of almost historical accidents that enabled the English and Anglo-Saxon world to, to take on this role. Yeah, I mean, these are, these are values that will take root anywhere, given the right conditions. You know, the Anglosphere is why Bermuda is not Haiti. It's why Hong Kong is not China. It's why Singapore is not Indonesia. Why did they come about? I mean, you know, I, I tried in the book to approach this as an anthropologist would. In other words, I looked at the period when the real takeoff was happening, really from the glorious revolution onwards, so particularly in the, in the 18th century, in the early 19th century. What struck foreign visitors as unusual about the British and American peoples at that time. And we had plenty, you know. Uh, Voltaire traveled extensively in, in Britain, Montesquieu. Tocqueville obviously wrote his, his famous book about American democracy. It's less well known that he wrote one about British democracy. He was married to an English woman. He, he spent a lot of time. And then a, a host of less famous visitors who kept travel journals and wrote letters home. And you can build up a picture of what struck continental visitors as the basis of Anglosphere exceptionalism. They found us undeferential, uh, unimpressed by rank. They found us mercantile and materialistic. They were often very rude about this. They, they, they thought it was money-grubbing. But the things that really struck them as extraordinary, I would say, were three. First of all, religious pluralism. The extraordinary thing that you could be a free thinker without being an anti-clerical, without being against the state, that there was no official orthodoxy. I'm not talking about religious tolerance, that existed in lots of places, but complete equality between denominations, including the, the freedom to proselytize, that was very unusual uh, until very recently. The second thing that, that they all noted was that we were an island or an archipelago. With the exception of North America, the Anglosphere uh, is an extended collection of island territories, Hong Kong, Singapore, the Caribbean, Great Britain, Ireland, New Zealand, and so on. North America obviously is not literally isolated, but politically it was more isolated than anywhere. You look at Washington, uh, Washington's farewell address, still reverentially read out in the Senate every year about being free from entangling alliances in Europe. You look at Jefferson's inaugural address about being kindly separated by the ocean from the exterminating havoc of one quarter of the globe. These were people who had an island mentality. Why does it matter? Well, if you're an island, you don't need a standing army in peacetime which means that the government lacks a mechanism for internal repression, which means that when the regime wants something from the people, it has to ask nicely by summoning their representatives in an assembly. And then the final thing, which I think really is the, the most extraordinary and anomalous, accidental, but beautiful miracle of all, is the common law. This bizarre system that nobody would invent where the law, instead of being written down in the abstract and then applied to specific cases, instead of coming down from the government, grows like a coral, case by case, comes up from the people, assumes residual rights, assumes personal liberty, is, is the property of the people rather than the state. And, and that, again and again, as I looked at the story, it turned out to be the common law that was the real hero, the, the, the defender of, of personal freedom and, and, of, uh, and the defence against arbitrary government. What do you see as the key developments along this road towards freedom? Well, you know, I, I go back, if you like, to the, the traditional landmarks that historians took for granted until the second half of the 20th century. Magna Carta, the English Civil War, the Glorious Revolution, the American Revolution, the battle against slavery. 
it's a very recent thing that we started trying to be clever and downplay these events. I mean, we all are familiar with the phenomenon of revisionism in, in history, and it often overshoots. It, it takes on a momentum of its own. But the importance of these events was clear to the agents at the time. You know, this was not some invention of the Victorian Whig historians. If you, if you look at the contemporary sources, they were clearly aware that what they were doing was freighted with epical significance. And modern scholarship tends to sustain the view that the Whig historians had that constitutional liberty has roots in pre-Norman England. If you look at Campbell on the uh, Anglo-Saxon state, Maticott on the origins of Parliament, Macfarlane on the basis of, of land law and inheritance laws in, in England, it is not unhistorical or anachronistic to talk about a very old form of English exceptionalism. And Britain and England haven't, and the Anglosphere, hasn't always been known for being freedom-loving. For example, England was a great slave-trading nation, and there were various aspects of the empire that were fairly opposite to the idea of freedom. So how, how can that be squared with this idea of inventing freedom? Against which contemporary civilization are we being harshly judged? I mean, it's incredibly bad history to say, from the point of view of the present, this or that is immoral or unacceptable, and therefore we're condemning, you know, we're going to write off everything that Churchill said because he had unenlightened views about India, or we're going to write off everything that Jefferson said because he kept slaves. Who did more for freedom? Persia or Russia or Japan? Which civilization did more to advance equality, actually, as well as individual liberty and the rule of law? You gave the specific example of slavery. You find me any civilization from the beginning of farming onwards that did not practice the enslavement of some human beings by others. It was common on every continent and in every archipelago. It was practiced by the Mayans, it was practiced by the Incas, it was practiced in Africa, it was practiced in Asia. What made the Anglosphere unique was not that at some stage we had practiced the, the abominable thing, but that we spent a relentless, uh, grueling campaign eliminating it. That was the, 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 what made us unusual. Even at the height of our battle with Napoleon, when we were fighting for national survival, we were still diverting ships and men to stop the transatlantic trade. You find me somebody who, you know, some alternative form of civilization that had a better claim to be an exporter of the ideals of personal liberty, the idea that the individual should be free from state coercion, and also the idea that laws should not be passed nor taxes raised except by our elected representatives. That's the essence of the Anglosphere inheritance. And it's, it's one that we, should be, we shouldn't be shy about uh, trumpeting and, and passing on to our children. And did some of these other countries, did any of them embrace some of the ideas of freedom that came from England, Britain and the, the Anglosphere? Yeah, I mean, the, the beauty of these ideas is they, they will take root anywhere, given the right political environment. You know, I mean, there was a time in the late 19th century when obviously the age was dominated by the English-speaking peoples. And that was explained in those days, partly with reference to the then fashionable ideas of racial determinism. And I think that kind of tainted the whole thing up until the 1930s. I don't think anyone really can make that argument today. All of the English-speaking territories are now multi-ethnic. And you know, the reason that a child of Greek parents in Melbourne is wealthier and more fulfilled than his cousin in Mytilene is plainly to do with political institutions rather than to do with genetics. So we, we can see now in a way that 
you know, was invisible to to some Victorian writers, that this is these are ideas that are passed on intellectually rather than seminally, in a, and they, they will take root anywhere. And the thing that I think would have most surprised the 19th century theorists is the success of India. They, a number of, uh, of British imperialists, including Churchill to the day he died, couldn't credit the idea that India as an independent state would be a successful, flourishing democracy. If they could be brought by some magic into our present age, they would be astounded to see that here is a, a country that has remained law-based, representative government. You know, elections are held freely and fairly. Nobody's exiled or shot. The army doesn't interfere in politics. And a fifth of the world's population lives under a legal system that is open to the individual claiming redress rather than just being an instrument of, of state control. And that really is an extraordinary miracle. And do you see there having been any sort of major setbacks on the road to freedom in British history or the history of the Anglosphere? Well, I mean, the, the big setback, obviously, was the, the Norman Conquest. You can, I think, fairly talk about 11th century England, uh, even 10th century England, adopting some of the attributes of what we would now call constitutional government. In fact, there's, a, there's an anniversary this year in 1014, uh, Ethelred II was given terms by the Witten. He was told, if you want to come back and be king, you have to do the following things. You have to accept the advice of your councillors. You have to prevent abuses by your reeves and so on. It was a kind of mini glorious revolution hundreds of years before the event, curiously unremarked by historians. I've, I've never understood why it's, uh, it's so neglected. But we were moving towards the idea not only of equality under the law, but of a body of inherited law, of folk right, that bound the king as surely as it bound the meanest churl in the kingdom. And that really was an extraordinary idea for its time. The idea that the law was bigger than the biggest guy in the country. You know, here was this, this thing that you couldn't see or taste or touch, and yet it was the most powerful force in the kingdom. Now, that, that was plainly given a setback after the, the Williamite invasion. He had his own ideas about the duties owed to a king and the country moved towards continental-style feudalism. And in a way, the next six centuries can be seen as a, a restoration and were seen by a number of the key protagonists as a restoration of the pre-Norman settlement. You look at the rhetoric being used, particularly in the run-up to and then during the English Civil War, people were constantly talking about throwing off the Norman yoke, ending the, the tyranny of William and his lieutenants and so on. So this is, again, this is not something invented after the fact by historians. I would say that was the biggest setback. I, I, I think we're at risk of another setback now. I think since the Second World War, there's been such an expansion of the government that the relationship between individual and state is not what used to be taken for granted in most English-speaking societies. A pivotal moment for the Anglosphere was the American War of Independence. How, how does that fit into the story of freedom? I mean, they claim to be getting away from the tyranny of the English king. It's a fascinating thing. If you go now to the battlefields, the American Revolution is presented in completely anachronistic terms. By the way, their battlefields are much, much better preserved than ours in the UK. They are lovingly treated as memorials, but we'll leave that aside. The tour guides in North America will talk about, you know, the American militiamen were here and the British regulars were here. Nobody, or almost nobody at the time, used that kind of language. This was a civil war within a single polity. And on both sides of the Atlantic, there were supporters of the ministry and opponents of the ministry. And as far as we can tell, public opinion was fairly similar 
on the two sides of the Atlantic. There was about 30 or 35% of the total population that was Tory in sympathy. The rest of the population of both North America and Great Britain was sympathetic to the, the grievances of the Patriot cause. Why did one side dominate on one side of the Atlantic and the other on the other? Really, I think just because of the accident of how much more representative the colonial assemblies were. There was a much more restricted franchise in Great Britain. The sympathy for the Whig cause was therefore not represented in Parliament to the same extent that it was in the colonial houses of, of Burgesses and, and other assemblies. But if, if you look at how people were speaking and writing at the time, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Madison, there was no question in their minds that they were defending what they saw as their rights as Englishmen, the patrimony that they assumed they had been born with as freeborn Englishmen. You know, a whole mythology has grown up around this. American school children used to be taught about Paul Revere riding through Massachusetts, telling everyone that the British are coming. I mean, you only have to think about that for five seconds to see that there is a quite major flaw, right? I mean, the, the whole population of Massachusetts in 1775 was British. It would have been a very eccentric thing to, to ride through the town shouting the British are coming at a completely British population. But how that story has been doctored after the event is very telling. It shows the way in which the actual causes of the conflict, which were to do with asserting a very old English Whig tradition has been lost, has been reinterpreted in terms that nobody at the time would have got, which was a, as a battle between two, two countries. Nobody saw it really in those terms until the French became involved in 1778. The revolutionaries saw themselves as conservatives, as defenders of traditional freedoms. And for that reason, I talk about the English Civil War, or the, the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, and then the the American Revolution as two episodes in one continuous conflict. I call them the first and second Anglosphere civil wars, the biggest denominator of which side you were likely to be on, whichever side of the Atlantic you were on in the 1760s and 70s, was not where you went to church or how rich you were uh, or where you lived geographically. It was which side your ancestors had been on in the first battle against the Stuarts in the 1640s. And the hardest thing in contemporary politics is to clear from our minds the map of the world as it now looks and remember it as it then was with a quarrel happening within a single political system wherever English was spoken. And over the centuries, have people within the Anglosphere, have they valued freedom more, do you think, than contemporaries in other parts of the world? Well, people respond to how their institutions have, have shaped them. Uh, yes, they have, but not, not because of any magical property in our soil or our skies or our genome. You know, if you, if you uh, took a baby from China and brought it up in, a, in an Anglosphere society and vice versa, you know, these attitudes take root in, in anyone, you know, and, and the, the, the proof of that is to look at Hong Kong or Singapore, which are the, the freest economies in the world. You know, plainly anyone can do this. But let me, let me put it like this. Most of human history has been characterized by oligarchy and oppression, by serfdom and slavery. We can be a rapacious and acquisitive species. People in a position of power, left to themselves, tend to rig the rules so that they will benefit and their children will benefit after them. And that, that is the normal form of human organization. You know, a, a medieval European monarchy would not have been so very different politically from a contemporary African kleptocracy. We are extraordinarily lucky to live in a place and at a time when people found mechanisms to hold their government to account, to elevate the individual over the state, and to make the law bigger than the executive. And have there been any occasions in history where 
this level of freedom has actually had any detrimental effects, for example, in making it harder to govern people or reducing equality, perhaps? But, you know, it's a really fascinating question that, I mean, in terms of making it harder to govern people, no, I mean, I think the answer to insurrection or, or violence or, or civil unrest is, is more liberty. It's, it's not more control. If you give people more responsibility, they behave more responsibly. But the question of equality is a really fascinating one. And this is something that I'd like to get into in, in more depth. It was something that just I came across when, when researching the, the, the book, and I haven't really properly had time to explore. But if you look at the, the really fundamental, elemental indicators of human equality, so, you know, age, longevity, infant mortality, literacy, calorie intake, height, we have been becoming a more equal society, certainly since the calamity of the Norman Conquest. That approximation, that growing equality, only stopped within the last 60 years in the West. And on one or two measures, it's, it's gone into reverse. Now, those 60 years, we can, we can argue about why that happened. There are all sorts of different theories out there. You know, some people say that it has to do with, with women having entered the workforce and we find our spouses through work now and this has created a super class. And, you know, I, I'm not a sociologist, I don't know. But one thing that I absolutely can say, because it's empirically obvious, is that that slowing of the equalization has happened when the government has been bigger than ever when the tax take and the control of, uh, of the economy by the state has been at its largest. So it's not just a question of saying state-enforced equality carries a high price in terms of overall prosperity or overall freedom. The bigger the state is, the less equal society has been. That's the, the extraordinary paradox of the late 20th century. So absolutely, I don't think there is a, a price. I think if you have competition, there is an automatic regulator that tends to level people up. That was Daniel Hanan. How We Invented Freedom and Why It Matters is out now, published by Head of Zeus. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Before our next section, it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. Monday marked the 70th anniversary of The Great Escape. On the 24th of March 1944, 76 servicemen broke out of the Stalag Luft III camp through a 336-foot-long tunnel. Only three reached safety. Of the 73 recaptured, 50 were shot. The audacious Second World War getaway inspired a 1963 blockbuster starring Steve McQueen, James Garner and Richard Attenborough. You can read more about The Great Escape and the 1918 breakout that inspired it at historyextra.com. In other news, Lawrence of Arabia's saddlebag is to go on display for the first time. The battered, zinc-lined leather case is thought to have been lent by the Bank of England in the First World War. According to The Guardian, it was filled with gold supplied by the government to reward the desert Arabs that Lawrence of Arabia was recruiting to rise against the Ottoman Empire. The box will go on display when the Bank of England Museum reopens to the public on the 31st of March. Meanwhile, the first Neolithic long barrow to be built in the UK for 5,000 years is attracting interest from all over the world. 
the burial chamber at All Cannings near Devizes in Wiltshire will contain niches housing urns of cremated ashes. When the barrow is complete, people will be able to pay to have ashes stored within chambers inside the mound. People from as far as California have already purchased niches. The barrow, being built on farmland, is set to be finished later this year. Thanks for that, Emma, and don't forget to visit historyextra.com for all the latest history news. And if you like your history, then I'm sure you'll want to check out our April issue, which has just gone on sale. This month, Professor Ian Kershaw questions why Adolf Hitler fascinates us more than any other historical monster. Meanwhile, we're exploring the mysteries of Shakespeare's life, we're challenging myths about Pocahontas, and discovering how beans were once thought to be a powerful aphrodisiac. Look out for our April issue in all good news agents and in our many digital formats. The Staffordshire Hoard, the largest collection of Anglo-Saxon gold and silver metalwork ever found, was discovered in a field in 2009. Last month, following years of extensive cleaning and investigation, the hoard was displayed in its entirety at Birmingham Museum. Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, was among the lucky few invited to view the hoard and speak to those involved in unlocking its secrets. So Fred, you're um, the farmer who owns the land that the um, the hoard was found on, is that right? Yes, that's right. So you're one of the first people to actually see the pieces um, that we've got here today? Yes, yeah, yeah. How did that feel when you were, when you when it was first discovered on your land? Well, when it was first discovered, I didn't look at it because I didn't believe it. It, it was only when the archaeologists came on to do some excavating yeah. that I went down and had a look and I could see it was something... Something, something quite special. Yes, yeah, mm. yeah. Have you got any favourite pieces at all in the in the hoard? I was there when they fetched one of the snakes out. Oh, right. And uh, the piece with the inscription on it. Yeah. So tell me what happened when, when the first pieces were found. The um, the person who was actually had the metal detector, yeah. did he come and tell you that he'd found something? Yes, yeah. And then you went out and you saw what he'd, he'd found? No, I didn't, to be honest. I didn't believe what he found. OK. I couldn't believe it. So did you call the experts in to have, or did he call the experts in to have a look? Uh, Terry's cousin actually reported it. Right. And then it all, it all yeah. took off from yeah. there by the yeah. sounds of it. Yeah. Uh, my name is Stephen Dean. I'm the Principal Archaeologist for Staffordshire County Council. And Deb, you are? My name's Deb Klemperer. I'm Principal Collections Officer, that is Head Curator at the Potteries Museum and Art Gallery in Stoke-on-Trent. OK, fantastic. So you were both, you've both been involved with the hoard from a, a very early stage. Yes. Um, and you were both actually there when it was actually being dug up, is that right? Yes. So yes. what was that like, the, those first days when, when you were there and you were, you were <laughs> these, these finds were being made? Um, very surreal. Mm. Um, I mean, generally... In, in my career, I've found maybe a couple of what you would call treasure objects, mm. but to see it coming out of the ground in such quantities and in the topsoil, um, not really from a feature or a layer, um, is, is startling. I yeah. mean, originally we thought, when we got the initial call, we thought it was just going to be a you know, non-event. Yeah. Um, and then as we, we went out for the first day, did a small test pit and I think we found about another 100 items okay. along with the Portal Antiquity Scheme finds liaison officer at the time, Duncan Slark um, and clearly we came back, we met here and with English Heritage and, and, and everybody else and we realised it had to be done quickly as yeah. quickly as possible but with, with 
the rigour that we could we could actually bring to it. So how far down was were the actual finds? Say topsoil. How far are we in, talking? In some circumstances, it was lying on the surface. Really? That's, so it was some that easy the, to find. Some of the photographs are not marked. They were actually as they were found on the surface. But generally, it's twinkling in the sunlight. Yeah. It was it eight was. months after the ploughing of the previous autumn. Oh, that's very peculiar. Well, if you think that I mean this material, um, generally, if you field walk, you um, you have a plough and then you will leave it for maybe two to four weeks, yeah. maybe five weeks, to weather for the soil clumps to weather down. And, and, and to have it there, you know, eight, as you say, eight months afterwards is quite special. And it's brilliant that Fred was an old-fashioned farmer, so he didn't direct drill his right. grass seed. If, he, yes. if he'd used a modern technique, it would have smashed the pieces to smithereens. Because some of them are very fragile, they and, are. you know. They've survived remarkably it. well, then, haven't they? A lot of they, the damage that you see on the pieces is from removing them from the weaponry rather than... Yeah. Yes. Damage. I mean, I, I don't know whether there has been any plant damage identified or, or not, but uh, most of the, the, the information that I get from, from the conservation team is that they are, the damage that we see is, is as Debbie was saying, is, is, is when it's been removed from its mm. uh, from its original item. Why was that? Why was that? Why did that happen though? Why were the, these pieces removed from the original items? Do we know? Well, it, if the story of Beowulf, which is um, it was written down in perhaps tenth or eleventh century, is a oral history that probably dates from around the time of the horse mm, yes. mid mm. mid seventh century, six six fifties. And people always thought it was a legend and that it was a somewhat of an exaggeration. But this shows that there's truth in it. Through the archaeology, you can see this, that they, they were obviously very well uh, provided for King and, and his main people, the main men following him, wore amazing um, fittings on their swords, on their helmets and so on. And one way to carry this around, because you could give it as um, a gift to a warrior who'd been particularly supportive of you in whatever way, yeah. would be to remove it from any weaponry. Because remember, if you vanquish warriors on a battlefield, you can take the swords. They're personalised because those fittings are very personal to that mm. individual. You can remove those, reuse the sword, with your fittings on, so yeah. you kill the warrior, kill their memory, and then you can either melt those down or rework them in some way. But you can carry them around more readily than you could a whole sack load of mm. swords and, and knives and shields, so you take any of the fittings off all of those things, mm. saddles maybe. And also, any helmet would probably have had an iron cap underneath, you take that away. Yeah. And so you can make some better use of it. I see, I see. And do you, what theories are there as to why this hoard was there in the first place? Is that the, the, the there are, there million are dollar question? <laughs> there really are. I mean, in, and I will give you my, my mm -hmm. view, and I'm yeah. sure they will give their view. <laughs> and then you go outside and you can ask anyone else and they will give you their view. Yeah. I mean, it really is. One of the problems that we have is, 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 a, is a general lack of context within the ground. Mm. Um, I mean, it was located on a ridge, yeah. um, at, the, at the toe end of a ridge, of a, what we call a hogback ridge. Um, it's about eight metres, maybe ten metres to the south of Watling Street, one of the big Roman roads, which is in active use in the 6th, 7th century onwards. Yeah. Um, it's quite close to uh, Wall, um, and Wall traditionally is considered to be a Roman town, although we are re currently looking at um, 
another of our Roman towns uh, at Roaster and finding more and more evidence of Anglo-Saxon activity. So there is, an, there is a potential for continuity, but we haven't found it yet. Right. One of the problems we have is that the Anglo-Saxons are quite, they live quite a light footprint in the archaeological record. So that's, that's a bit of an issue for us. So, but we can look at the broader landscape and take that. Yes. So with the broader landscape, and again, this is just a theory, you have this idea that we have uh, at, at Doomsday, this area is, is identified as waste. Now, waste doesn't mean unproductive, mm -hmm. it means something slightly different. But in this context, talking to um, specialists, the view is it, it you are looking at a marginal landscape. Um, you look at some of the place name evidence, and again, that would suggest a largely marginal landscape. Although, you know, I mean, there may well have been some activity yeah. in it. Um, that coupled with some of the evidence that we have got, which is sort of a lack of a lack of evidence almost, again, I would suggest supports this idea of, a, of that marginal landscape. So my view is that what we've got here is, is, a, is a material which has been buried at a prominent position, very close to the, to the road, with the intention to return and collect. Right. Now for what reason, I don't know, because hordes can have multiple reasons or multiple mm. functions, but my view is that it's, it's with the intention to return. And that they've just mm. simply never had the option, the the chance, yeah. uh, to return. And it's a kingly, or it's a, it's a very high status, yes, war chest or treasure chest. Yes, so you can pay off your highest warriors or whatever. And it's very, yeah. it's it's very interesting. I mean, the main the main story for us now is that the research is showing how pieces go together, and, mm. and it, it really points up the things that aren't there. Yes, there are a whole range of materials that aren't there. It's all male warrior gear virtually. There are some Christian pieces perhaps looted from early churches or whatever. There are very few buckles. There's mm. two tiny buckles which may have been the buckles used to uh, fasten the scabbard for a sax which often was fastened horizontally on yeah. the belt. Mm -hmm. But there aren't any of the Baldrick buckle, buckles no. or any of no. the major bigger chunkier buckles that might have existed. And it's really great to see it laid out all in one place. And see all this pairing going on. So you've mm. got possibly fifteen hundred fragments making up a helmet. Yeah, that is incredible. Yeah. there's still a deal of work to do, but it's a real two years down the line from the, the research program starting. Remember, the conservation started before that. Yeah, yes, there's, there's been about twelve thousand hours worth of conservation. <laughs> it means that we're getting closer to making bigger composite objects yeah. for all this this disparate stuff that was in the ground. Yeah. And what else have you found out from the conservation work that you've been, you've been doing? The conservation work has uh, really helped the bloke, Chris Fern, who's been cataloguing it, because the two together, they're working down a microscope looking at the things yeah. all the time. It's very clear that people made, uh, laid out mark, laying out marks on the, on the gold. So when they made a pommel, which is the, end, the handle or end of a sword, mm. the metal pommel cap, they had the plain gold and then they marked out the pattern so if they were going to put wire on. Oh right, okay. Sometimes you can see those marking out marks because they've got the pattern slightly wrong. But some of those wires, um, because they were drawn through a draw plate, rolled and then glued using a heat process, possibly just using a little bit of gold to, to mm. glue gold to gold, which is so skilled mm. yeah. that it didn't melt everything. Um, these wires are incredibly fine, very hard to 
replicate. Anyone trying to copy it now is finding it very difficult. The people are trying, yeah. but the skill and the fineness of it is staggering. So were you surprised by that? Were you expecting that degree of, of skill from, from the Anglo-Saxon period? I think, well, we've, everyone's always had pointers, haven't they? There's always been mm. the old pommel cap fan mm. or whatever, and certainly the artwork is broadly recognisable, but we're seeing more, many more examples. And uh, the research project as well as looked at the metal itself. Yeah. So at the British Museum scientists have looked at the surface of the gold and we, we've allowed them to take tiny samples to prove that the gold wasn't damaged by being in the soil, okay. but, but it's been altered in some way on the surface. Mm. The gold's been alloyed with copper and silver and then just to make it blingier or golden, <laughs> yeah. they've done some sort of acid etching or something on the surface to bring up the gold again and leach out the copper and silver. That's incredibly skilled work. Yeah. Very, very skilled indeed. And it's very exciting. It's so exciting that the British Museum staff are now looking at their own famous Saxon finds, like the Desborough necklace and so yeah. on, and checking the gold from those as well. Because it'll have implications, not just for this period of the 7th century and, and jewellery manufacture in England, but you can look at the Roman mm. yeah. gold work and so on. There's going to be a, quite a lot of at the moment, unseen outcomes from looking at this group of material. Mm. And we're just at the end of the first stage of research. Yeah. Um, just this two-week um, piecing exercise that the cataloger has been doing has produced 600 joins. Mm. Gosh. And that's a massive amount of work. Speaking yeah. of someone who used to work with medieval pottery and stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That's, he, he already had it in his mind because he'd catalogued every piece. He'd just not seen it in one place. Yeah. So Chris Furness has had an amazingly joyful two years. He's had a great time. (laughs) I I mean, and I I think that's that. I mean, Debbie makes a really important point. Mm. It's it's fantastic as an assemblage, but it's it's the it's the next steps, it's Mm. the leaps, it's the tangential leaps quite often. Um, So you might be thinking about technology, you might be thinking about manufacture, you might be thinking about trade routes. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm not sure if if you're aware that you know they have uh, you know they work with a team from uh, in Paris to actually locate where some of the garnets are won. So there are two distinct groups. Mm. Um, And it's also yes, one's the two. There's more work to do on the garnets, but initial work which we've done way back in 2010 with the National Geographic grounds was looking at a garnet, it looked like the garnets might have come from North India and Eastern Europe, but there's loads more work to do on that mm. one. And the current research isn't trying to source the garnets. What we're trying to do is get a catalogue published with every single artifact illustrated, because mm. mm-hmm. drawing, photo, and x ray, because those all show, bring out different yeah. detail. Yeah. The drawings can show, Chris can shade and show the um, animals intertwining, yeah. uh, that to us may look just like squiggles. Um, but once the catalogue's out there, which we hope to do in the next two or three years, you can imagine there's endless amounts of research. Because one of the things about the designs, the animal ornament and so on, is some pieces have late and early, what used to be thought of as late and early oh, style, right. but one particular design on the same They've been piece. combined. Well, they're just, it's good to reassess, people will reassess dating. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. typology is a funny thing. The, the styles and designs on the artefacts sort of date themselves by comparison with others of similar dates, mm. some, some of which do have absolute dating. But some of the ideas that people have had about the changes in the designs through time will have to be changed. Yeah, yeah. And this may impact manuscripts, mm. the Book of Doro and so on, mm. because, yeah. again, they don't necessarily date themselves. No. And comparison with the, with the designs, some of which are extremely similar, 
Yeah. I think, uh, once once the catalogue's published, will I think yeah. revolutionise that study of early manuscripts. It's going to have a knock-on effect, then, isn't it? I think it, it will. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And not just not just in art, art history, but in in other yeah. other areas as well. So there's a lot to do. So, Pieter, you're part of the conservation team yes. um, who's been working on the hoard. I mean, it's incredibly exciting to see it all laid out. as all, yes. all 4,000 pieces. Um, can you maybe just take us through some of the some of the key pieces that you've got in front of us and explain what we're, what we're looking at? So, obviously, everything, um, the majority of things have a, a military function, mm -hmm. a lot of them being parts of swords. And what has been quite exciting over the past two, two weeks for the, um, the sort of intense research project and over the last two years is kind of joining these fragments together to make objects, mm -hmm. whole objects again. Um, one of the nice ones are the silver pommel caps, which are very fragmentary. Now we can see that some of the little gold mounts fit within those objects. So, very small panels that we had no idea what they were for, we now realise that they're a small decorative feature. Yeah. And that's quite nice because what it may tell us is um, access to resources because this is probably a time period when they, they didn't have so much access to gold. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing is them using silver and accenting them okay. with, with, with these gold pieces. Um, I mean, they're also, it's, I mean, a lot of it is so exquisitely um, decorated as well, isn't it? Because they were functional pieces. They were. And um, there's a little one here, which I rather like, with a little, it's got like a little face, face on it. Yeah. Um, and they, uh, this little kind of, there's about, about ten or so here, aren't there? Yeah. Um, what, what are these? The Again, so they're all little silver pommel caps. Um, they're a little bit older than the gold ones. Mm -hmm. um, and some of them, like the one you've pointed out with the little face on, may yeah. actually be one of these ancestry swords. So, okay. so when it, even when it went into the hoard, deposited, it was an old object. Yeah. And you can tell that, like you can tell, especially with some of the pommel caps, there's a lot of wear at the top. And that's where um, the warriors have been essentially rubbing their thumb. So the pommel cap, that's the top of, top of, the, top of, the, sword. of the hilt, bit of the sword. Yeah. So, so the very top. Okay. I mean, and in some of the pieces, it can be thin as well. The gold looks very, very thin. It is. And what you can see in some of the pommel caps is there actually there's a copper alloy liner inside, mm -hmm. and that's to support the gold. Right. Um, and there is evidence that they're taking these copper alloy liners out, which is, again, further evidence that these things are often mounted down, so they are actively yeah. sorting out the different types of metals. And there's some sort of religious pieces as well. There's a couple of crosses, aren't there, as well as part of the hoard. Yeah. Um, were they meant to? Are they? You know, do we know whether it was a it was a Christian kind of burial type thing or a, um, a pagan? Do we know anything about that from what we've got here? We don't really know the sort of the, the who's and why's no. of where it was deposited. Um, I see Mercy at this time is kind of. It's quite an active sort of pagan moving into Christian time period. Mm. So it's not surprising that we're seeing both of them. Yeah. But what is, I think what we should take from this is that what we're seeing is um, objects and design styles that are coming from all over England. Yeah. So even those things look Christian, look pagan, they are coming from yeah. other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, not just Mercia. Yeah. So someone has gone out and actively either through warfare or through collecting, managed to amass objects which come across also all Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Another favourite piece is a little fish down here. It's like a little... Um it's not, I don't think it's a brooch, but it's like a little, it's a, it's oh, you know the one a, I mean. It's a little melt. Yeah. And that's, that's got garnet, isn't it? There's quite a lot of garnet in the hoard, isn't there? There it is. Was, was that quite a common stain at the time? It's common for Anglo-Saxons. Mm -hmm. um, not a lot of Romans used it. No. Um, so 
Um, it's very much seen as sort of an Anglo-Saxon design type, um, but there are a lot of it, and more than we realised before. Yeah. I think that's also what the Horde's telling us, is that, you know, what we see in Beowulf may be true yeah. of lots of high-ranked warriors yeah. carrying high-ranking weapons. Yeah. And this kind of proves that, it kind of brings that alive. Yeah. And how do you go about um, conserving um, a, a, a horde like this? I mean, where do you start? So we've kind of started with the big key pieces, as yeah. you would, really, <laughs> and then made our way through the fragments. Um, it's really been um, display and research-led, yeah. so what people need in cleaning to learn from, we've, we've cleaned. Yeah. But we've done it very slowly. We've done over what was essentially four years mm -hmm. um, but with a lot of help so we had a lot of volunteers we had three full-time staff yeah. um, so, and the way we're doing it is, is kind of new for conservation so instead of using scalpels which could possibly mark the gold we've used um, thorns so berberous okay. thorns because yeah. um, someone had an idea that old gramophones were played with thorns so yeah. they're very sharp but they don't scratch so we didn't want anything that would scratch the gold because there's a lot of marks both from when it was torn off the object mm -hmm. but even for manufacture we get to lots you see lots of crosses and marks which they yeah. put on and was it quite did it need a lot of conserving when you when you first when it was first brought to you did it need a lot of work on it was it quite dirty I mean it's very shiny now it is it was very dirty and the other key thing is because everything's twisted and torn mm. What it means is that sometimes if you move a bit of soil, maybe a little bit of garnet falls out as well. Yeah, so yeah. they're kind of, the soil's kind of almost keeping some things together. Yeah. So that, it's, it's a, quite a difficult process. To, and a lot of it's very bent. I mean, the, the yeah. cross I was talking about earlier, it's all kind of folded up. This is one down here. Yeah, it's all folded up into itself. Why would that, have, was that just for space? Or? I think so. I think it's probably ease of carry. And mm. they certainly were never going to use these objects again. Yeah. Um, would you say you have a favourite piece out of the hospital? Do I have a favourite piece? I do have a favourite piece. It's actually one of the very, very plain pommel caps. Okay. That's my favourite piece. <laughs> Let me see if I can find it in the line-up. It's actually this one here. Oh, okay. I'm quite a big fan of it. Just because it shows the level of detail they went to. Mm -hmm. With all the other pommel caps, you can kind of see the, the imagery. Whereas this one, very plain. But as you can see in that little edge there, there's a very small filigree wire. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's probably like 0.2 of a millimetre across. You can hardly see it. No. So you kind of think, how on earth why, did you actually get, yeah. Yeah, why did they do that? What mm. does that mean? Yeah. Um, and it, it's just a very interesting piece. Yeah. So what, what's next for the, the you know, conservation side of things for the hordes? The big, the big um, future of the conservation will be starting to put the fragments together, physically yeah. joining them to make them into whole objects, finding more joins. We have a lot of work on the foils, some of which probably make a helmet, some yeah. of which make other things, sort of tops of drinking horns, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and just finding more, more of the illustration. The foils are very um, nice in particular, not because they make up a helmet, but because they're images of a time period that we have very almost no images of. So after the Romans left and before the manuscripts began, people weren't really drawing illustrations. No. But what we have here are images of warriors. You know, they have different textile patterns. Yeah. They, you know, we can see what the sort of scabbard decoration, what kind of shoes they're wearing. And it sort of fills, it doesn't fill the whole archaeological gap, but it gives us clues to perhaps... Oh, step along you know, the way, isn't it? Is. it? And they're all sort of very regimented. So are they using sort of Roman military fighting styles? So it could give us clues about how they're actually operating yeah. as warriors as well. I mean, they must look pretty impressive going into battle wearing all this. I mean, 
it must have shone in the, in the sun. Yeah, and I think it's a, also a form of intimidation. Yeah, definitely. If you turn up to the battlefield looking like this, you're clearly a well-trained in warrior yeah, in control who means business. That was Charlotte Hodgman talking to experts on the Staffordshire Horde at Birmingham Museum. You can find out more information at staffordshirehoard.org.uk. And you can also read Charlotte's blog about her visit at historyextra.com forward slash Birmingham. Plus, we have a gallery of some of the Horde's key pieces at historyextra.com forward slash staffs Horde. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll try and read out some of your messages in future episodes. One listener who contacted us recently was Andrew Watts, who I believe is listening all the way over in New Zealand. Andrew writes, I'm an avid listener to your superb podcast programme. I think you hit exactly the right conversational but informative note in your interviews. I wouldn't change anything about your programme except your awful theme music. Could you please change it? Now, personally, I've always liked our theme music, but perhaps I'm in a minority here, so... If you have a view on this, do let us know on the email address I mentioned earlier, podcast at historyextra.com. And of course, you can also contact us on social media. We're on Twitter at History Extra, or you can become a Facebook fan, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com, for all the latest history news, image galleries, blogs, quizzes and more. Next week, we'll be broadcasting a lecture from last year's History Weekend Festival. Make sure to join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in Birmingham and in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.